If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, you can open them to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have it, you can use one of ours. It should be in the pew in front of you. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 today. I covered verses 1 through 12 back in October uh, in a message called The God Who Celebrates. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, I listened to it this week, just remember what I said. And I said some pretty good stuff. Sometimes I listen to it and I'm like, wow, man, there really is a God because I don't even remember thanking that. Uh, so I, I just tell you that it'd probably encourage you if you went back and listened to it. Even if you don't, just tell me that you did so I feel good about the effort I put into that message. Uh, today I want to look at verses 13 through 18. I almost skipped over this section, but it's a, it's a section that is not taught on very often. And I probably am never going to have the opportunity to teach on this section again. This is kind of one of those verses that once I get finished with Nehemiah, I'll probably never touch on it again because it's about one of the festivals in the Old Testament. And uh, especially growing up as a kid in a Baptist church, uh, we never talked about the festivals. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Old Testament festivals besides it was something that they did. Uh, And this is one of those festivals. And so I wanted to stop and look at it because there's actually some really good themes involved in this festival that point us to the gospel. And as I studied it this week, I was like, man, maybe we should bring this festival back. It's a really cool festival and a little bit of like a Baptist knowledge for you. Uh, Falls Creek Camp actually started with this festival. In the year 1900, they did this festival in Davis, Oklahoma. 17 years later, it became a youth camp. So it's kind of a a cool uh, piece of history uh, that I didn't know before I studied this week. But before I jump into it, uh, I I had to give you kind of an overview of the different types of laws in the Old Testament. And I think this will help you a lot if you're reading through the Bible this year. And I hope that you are. We're almost finished with the first month of our Bible reading challenge. Some of you are like, oh no, I didn't even check off one date yet. That's why I made it a nine-month study, so you have three extra months, so you can still begin with us if you want to. But as you're reading, if you're keeping along with us, you probably just went through Leviticus, you're getting close to Leviticus, and uh, this is going to be really helpful for you because a lot of the laws in Leviticus, you're like, what in the world does this have to do with my life? And I totally understand it, and that's because there's three different types of laws in the Old Testament. The first type is what we would call ceremonial laws. These are the commands that were given to Israel. Uh, These are the kind of things that we no longer do because they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They all point to Jesus, and Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of them. So like an example of a ceremonial law would be the the burnt offerings, and the offering of of the bulls and the goats and the sheep's. All of those things are ultimately pointing forward to Jesus, who is our great high priest and the great lamb, the, the, the ultimate sacrifice, which is why we don't do him anymore and why I'm not a high priest. I'm just a pastor. But all those things are important because they point us towards Jesus. So we don't actually do them anymore, but there's still value in reading them because they point us towards Jesus. The second type would be the judicial laws. Now, these are the kind of laws uh, that were given to Israel specifically because they were a nation. Now, true or false, the church is not a nation. Yeah, true. We are not a nation. We should not be a nation. There are some people who want to make Christianity a nation. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are a religion. We, we are to abide by the laws of the nation that we are in so far as they are biblical. Uh, Israel was different because God was literally the leader of the nation. So he gave them all of their laws. So when we read the judicial laws, we are not to apply them directly to our nation. Now, there are principles in which we can apply, and it would be wise for our legislators to look at the Bible, of course, and make laws based upon the principles of the Bible. But that's not what they're for. You don't actually do these things anymore. But the principles underneath them are still very valuable and help us with our own morality as Christians. So here's an example of an obscure law. That's a judicial law. Uh, There's a law in Leviticus that says you are not to boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now, that's the kind of law we get to in our Bible reading plan, and we're like, what in the world? Why is this in the Bible? You know, nobody has that on a coffee mug. Thou shalt not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. What does this have to do with the Christian life? Well, actually, if you look at the principle of it, there's really some value there. 
The whole point behind it is this. You don't take something that is meant for life and use it as an instrument of death. God gave the goat milk so that her baby would grow up. And you're taking this thing that God designed to help a baby nurture and grow up. It's supposed to be a source of life, and you're using it as a source of death. This is actually one of the strong arguments we have as Christians for why we are opposed to abortion. Because you're taking the womb, which was meant for life. God created it to be a a place that is safe for life to prosper and grow, and you're making it an instrument of death. This is, uh, goes back directly to that law in Leviticus that you think this is so obscure. It has nothing to do with anything. Oh, actually, it has a lot to do with everything. Now, I'm not going to tell you guys tonight, don't go home and boil a goat and some other's milk because you're probably not tempted to do that. But if we look at our culture, it is very tempted to make these things that are meant for life and turn them into instruments of death. And we ought not do that. So that's ceremonial, judicial. And then there is the moral law. And the moral law is still binding even to Christians. In other words, these are the laws that we are still supposed to follow. These laws can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. Uh, These are the ten laws that God gives on Mount Sinai that ultimately are the laws in which all these other laws come from. These are the big ones. And these are still binding on us as Christians. If you are following Jesus under his lordship, that means you're going to obey these laws. Jesus sums them up. He says, love God and love your neighbors, uh, which a a lot of theologians will tell you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they they divide up perfectly. The first five or so are about loving God, and then the next five or so are about loving your neighbor. And so they, they all play out in that way, and we see it throughout the scriptures. So just to make sure you guys understand this, you guys are now theologians, you understand the three uses of the law. I'm going to give you a couple examples, and you guys shout out, you tell me which uh, category you think this will fall in. And uh, by the way, Zach Ross looks fantastic today. Uh, he's dressed up in a suit, and he keeps catching my eye out of the corner, and I feel like a, a lousy pastor, like I should have dressed up. When I walked in, I thought, oh no, is it Easter? Did I forget it's Easter? It's not Easter. He said he just woke up that way, so awesome. Uh, nothing to do with anything. Uh, okay, here we go. Tattoos. Bible says thou shalt not get tattoos in Leviticus. What do you think that is? Would you say that is a ceremonial, a judicial, or a moral law? Anybody? Judicial. judicial. Very good. Congratulations. Uh, so people who will say you shouldn't have tattoos because of what Leviticus says, you should say to them, you also shouldn't have beards, and you should probably not eat pork. To which, if they're any good Baptists, they're going to say, give up pork? What are you talking about? Uh, because this is a judicial law. It was meant for the people of Israel for a specific time. Is there still a principle under it? Yes. You should not get a tattoo that is in the worship of another deity. Okay, so if you have one of those, you're in sin. But other than that, no, this is a judicial law meant for the Israelites. Uh, okay, what about the Sabbath? Now, this is kind of a tricky one. Actually, my mind just changed on this recently because I was taught differently. But the Sabbath, what do you think? See if you guys know your Ten Commandments. It's, it's a moral law. The, the Sabbath is actually found in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we often think of this as more of a ceremonial law. Uh, but Jesus never actually abolishes the Sabbath. He just gives it new meaning. The, the, this day that is supposed to be set apart and holy to the Lord, we remember Him, and we're, we're not slaves to our jobs, but we come and we worship God, is actually a, a moral law, something that's still binding to the Christian today that we ought to do. All right, the last one is, what about these festivals that we're going to preach about today? What do you guys think that one is? Ceremonial. Very good. Uh, Now, we are no longer required to follow them, but there is still much to learn from them, and we might actually want to follow them. So the one we're looking at in Nehemiah today is called by at least three different names in the scriptures. It's called the Festivals of Ingathering, because it's at the end of the harvest season, which is why they call it that. That's Exodus 23, 16. It's called the Festival of Booths in Leviticus 23, and as we see, Nehemiah calls it today the Festival of tabernacles. So what we're going to do is we're going to just over, we're going to walk through the text as it's presented to us. And then I want to look at three different themes that we actually find from this text that point us to Jesus and are very important for us to remember. But first, as always, I'm going to pray because as 
uh, we just, uh, Tiffany just told us about Ezekiel, what brings life to the dead bones? It's not my words, it's when I prophesy, it's when I speak the words of God to you. That's my only hope that this sermon will have any value in your life. I'm going to speak the words of God, and my prayer is I'll watch dry bones come to life before me. So let's pray. Father God, I need you desperately as I preach this message. God, your word is so deep. For so long I read over these passages about festivals thinking there was nothing of value there for me. But God, I repent of that. Because there is value in all of your word. There is not one word that is not there on purpose. And God, you want all of it to speak life into us. And so God, I pray that you would help me today as your messenger. God, if this is my message, it's worthless. But God, my prayer and my hope and my expectation is that it will be your message. So I pray that anything that I say that is true today would be highlighted in the minds of my hearers. And anything that I say that is false would be washed away from their memory by this afternoon. God, I love you and I praise you. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you're following along, I'm just going to go verse by verse here. And I hope that you're seeing what I'm saying so that, you know, I'm not making it up. Verse 13, it says on the second day. Well, the second day of what you ask? Well, they're having an outright revival. If you look at the first 12 verses, uh, Nehemiah or Ezra rather is standing up and he is reading the law of God to the people for hours on end. Now, he's not reading the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John's not written yet. He is reading the book of Leviticus for hours, and the people are worshiping with their hands held high. Some of them are bowing down, they're weeping, and they're rejoicing. Now, that's how you know a revival is taking place. It's not like this exciting song being played. No, he's literally just reading the law of God, and the people are going nuts over it. Why? Because the Spirit of God is being stirred in their hearts. And we see on the second day, they're going to restart it. So they read until they got tired, and then they all started celebrating, rejoicing. They went to bed. They come back the next day, and guess what they do? He stands up at a pulpit like this on an elevated stage, and he begins to read the law of God. It says, On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and the Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites to dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. Now, if you have a Bible, and it's your Bible, but even if it's our Bible, you can do it and then take it home, you should underline where it says seventh month. Anytime you see the number seven in the Bible, it's usually pretty important. Verse 15. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters just as it is written. The people went out and brought back branches and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. So this was one of the three pilgrim festivals, meaning that if you lived outside of Jerusalem, you had to come to Jerusalem for this festival. You couldn't just do it outside. There were some exceptions made. But for three of the festivals, you actually had to come to Jerusalem, and this is one. So you had to make sure all your stuff was in order because you're about to take a seven-day vacation and come to Jerusalem. And when you got there, what you would all do as a family is you would build a tent. Verse 17, the whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, and there was tremendous joy. Now, there's a little bit of confrontation here, because it almost sounds like he's saying they haven't celebrated this all the way since Joshua, which we know is not true, because literally in the book of Ezra, it says they celebrated it. So what I think they mean by this is it wasn't celebrated with this much joy since the day of Joshua. Because in the days of Joshua, it was the first time they ever celebrated the festivals of shelter. And so there was a tremendous joy because they'd been released from Egyptian slavery. They'd wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and look at what God had done. And in Ezra, when they celebrate it, there's a lot of fear surrounding it because they're worried about being attacked. But now we're past all the enemies. They've all been silenced. 
And now for the first time in over 70 years, they get to celebrate this because they've been released from slavery and God has proven himself to be who he says he is again. And so there's tremendous joy as they celebrate this. Verse 18, it says, Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day for all seven days, from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And then on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to this ordinance. So what we see is the first seven days was supposed to be a big party. They're celebrating. They're having joy. And then on the eighth day, it is a, a solemn celebration. Now, why is that? Why is it solemn on the eighth day? Well, what we know from tradition and what the, the Jews still do to this very day is on that eighth day, they would read the book of Ecclesiastes together. And the whole point of Ecclesiastes is that life without God is meaningless. Ecclesiastes is all about how you are a vapor. You think your life is long, but if you're 120 years old, it's like nothing. It's like a blade of grass. Like imagine you're looking out on a, on a meadow full of grass. And if you want to know what your life is like in the grand history of the world, you get down and you pluck one piece of grass. That's what your life is like when it comes to eternity. It is meaningless. You are here today and gone tomorrow and nobody's going to remember you. So it's a very depressing book if God's not involved. And what this whole point of reading Ecclesiastes at the end of this shelter, it has been a very powerful teaching moment for fathers to their sons and for even fathers to themselves as they would look out at these tents, these dwellings, and the, the priest would say, that is what your life is like. It, it's just a tent. It, it is easily knocked over by a storm. And it doesn't matter how nice your tent is because early in the week what they would do is they would decorate the tent and they would allow the kids to like draw pictures and put them up on the wall. And all of our tents might be decorated differently, but at the end of the day, it's still just a tent that is falling apart. That is what all of our lives are. And uh, some of us, we need this lesson because we get a little proud in ourselves, don't we? Like, look at me, I'm young and strong. My tent's awesome. It's still just a tent. Or you think, I'm old, I've got all of this wisdom. It's just a tent. Like, you're, you may be, I don't care if you're 90 years old, you're still just a little tadpole when it comes to all of eternity. Or you think, I'm rich, I'm powerful, I'm strong. You're still just a tent fading away. In fact, the New Testament picks up on this, Second Peter 1.14, Peter says, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. See, he's referring to himself, his body, as a tent. 2 Corinthians 5.4, Paul says this, Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. It's a powerful way to teach a lesson to your children, is it not? You see why I think this might be something good to bring back? Now, there are three different themes, and so we'll look at each of them. Uh, there's actually, I could do a whole sermon series on this festival, but as I've said every week, I'm trying to get through Nehemiah, and God keeps making it hard on me. But the, the first theme that I want you guys to see that was really important for the people to understand is that they were to relax. God wanted to remind his people to relax. When was the last time you guys had a seven-day vacation? Raise your hand if last year you had a seven-day, full seven-day vacation. Nobody. Yeah, and I'm, I'm on that list as well. I'm lucky if I get a three-day vacation. Uh, and that's just part of our American ethics. But did you know God, every single year, this was annual, commanded his people to have a seven-day vacation where no work was allowed. The rabbis tell us, even to this day, that the only law the Festival of Shelters has is that you are not to do any work that would interfere with relaxation and enjoyment of the holiday. To which some of the parents were like, well, then do we have to bring our kids? <laughs> That would get in the way of relaxation and enjoyment. And that you have to bring your kids. You have to take care of your kids. But isn't that a cool thing? It's like you're on a cruise ship all week. Somebody else do the laundry. Let somebody else do all the work. All you're supposed to do is relax and enjoy this holiday. Now, God is not anti-work. He's not anti-lazy. We know that. These people deserve a vacation. They just spent 52 days working sun up to sun down as they build the wall. 
It is important that we work hard and we honor God with our work. But God would also say it is very important that you relax and that you remember that I am God and you rejoice in the fact that I am God. Which is why I told you to underline the fact that this festival was in the seventh month. Underlined in the seventh month. Why did I say that? Well, because what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. And it is a reminder to us every seventh month. This was actually October in their calendar. But every seventh month, they were supposed to rest and remember their God. This is a really powerful kind of thing that we must remember as Americans. Because if you're anything like me, work comes a lot easier than rest. In fact, a lot of times when I'm supposed to be on vacation, I find myself doing things that are work-related. It's very difficult for us to just take a breath and rest, but it's very vital that we do so because we have to remember that we are not God, that we're just a blade of grass. And if we stop working, guess what? The world's not going to end. If we stop working, guess what? The world's problems will still be there waiting for us when we get done working. We're not that important, which is why I found it actually kind of really interesting when I read that Falls Creek started with this Kind of festival because that's what it reminded me of when I was reading of it. You come to Falls Creek, you pilgrimage there with a whole bunch of other Christians, and what do you do? You spend your time eating a lot of food. You don't get very many naps because there's teenagers there, but I imagine naps would be awesome. Uh, and, and then you spend all this time together having fun together, and you go to the, the temple, if you will, the tabernacle, and you have this big worship time, and then you come back to your cabin, and you have this time where it's just you and your family. That's what this would have been like. Uh, we know that the, they would have just ate in their tents, taken naps, They would have had guests come into their tent. They would entertain their guests, and then they would go to other people's tents. It's like a big family reunion. You've got to think about it. They didn't have phones or or even email or anything like we have where we get to talk to our relatives. So this might be one of only three times all year you got to see your old friends and your old family. It was a big party where you'd come in, and you would relax, and you would enjoy the time with one another. Now, friends, this is actually essential to understanding the gospel. Because we tend to think of God's law and God's commands as cumbersome, but they are not. They are intended for our good. Now, we can get legalistic and we can get in the way of them and we can make something that was meant for our good become legalistic, just as they did with the Sabbath in the day of Jesus. But that's not what God's laws were intended to do. God's laws were intended for our good, but we are unable to follow them on our own. So the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us to do those. And they also point forward to Jesus Christ. And the big message of the gospel is this. Relax, because everything that needs to be done has been done for you. I love what uh, Jimmy Bueller says. He says, Here is where the gospel becomes good news. In the death of Christ, we sinners can be forgiven of sin. And because of the perfect life of Christ, we are credited or imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ by faith. When we understand the gospel this way, we see it not as something we do, but rather as something God has done in Christ. As Christians, we do not live the gospel or do the gospel. Rather, we believe the gospel. Everything contained in the gospel is done for you. The active agent in the gospel is God, who has accomplished your salvation without any of your help. The gospel exists outside of you. Dear weary pilgrim, rest in the gracious gospel of Christ. This is why Jesus comes and he says, are you weary? Are you burnt out? Come to me for a real rest. And what a lot of us do is we come to Jesus and it makes our life harder because we think we have to perform. We think there's things we must do for Jesus to love us. And friends, if that is your idea of what the gospel is, it's no gospel at all. That's not good news. Life is stressful enough. What you need is rest. You need to know that God has done everything that needs to be done for you already. You need to relax in the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's the the first theme. The second theme is that we are to rejoice. God wanted to remind his people to rejoice, to celebrate. Uh, We see this in Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 17, when it gives the reason for the festival there. It says this. You are to celebrate the festival of shelters 
for seven days, when you have gathered in everything from your threshing floor and winepress. Rejoice during your festival, you, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, as well as the Levite, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates. You are to hold a seven-day festival, a seven-day party for the Lord your God in the place He chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands, and you will have abundant joy. All your males are to appear three times a year before the Lord your God in the place He chooses, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of shelters. No one is to appear before the Lord empty-handed. In other words, everybody's got to bring something to this party. Verse 17. Everyone must appear with a gift suited to his means according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. I love that. That's so cool. He's saying if you're a rancher and you got cattle, you bring a cow because we're having ribeyes. If you got a vineyard, you bring the wine. Whatever you have, you bring it and you bring your best. It's kind of like our family meals. We have those you know, once a month and that's important and they're good. And the, the, the Israelites would have these kind of festivals as well. But they said this time of year, you don't just bring hamburgers if that's what you usually bring. You better bring the ribeyes. You save up. You're not drinking boxed wine. You're you're drinking the Napa Valley special at this party. Everybody is bringing their very best to this festival. Why? Because we're rejoicing in the Lord. We're having a party because of what God has done for us. There's a really cool tradition that they still have uh, when they celebrate this today. And it is called the Barak Hamazon. Now, I probably butchered the way you're supposed to say that, but the Barak Hamazon, it's a prayer they pray after every single meal. And translated to English is grace after the meal. Now, we normally pray when? We normally pray before the meal, almost like a magical spell we put over our food. I remember as a kid, if we forgot to pray, took a bite, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm probably going to get food poisoning because that bite wasn't blessed by the Lord. You had to pray before every single meal in my household. And uh, that's great. You know, I think we should pray before the meal. But in this tradition, they pray after the meal. And it's based on Deuteronomy 8.10. It says, when you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. You see when they bless the Lord? After they eat and they are full. That's why I tell people sometimes the best way to thank God for your meal is to enjoy it. And then after you enjoy it, to praise God for the meal that you just ate. Because... What we often do, and this is a good thing, is who do we thank after the meal? We thank the cook. Hey, thank you so much for cooking. That was a great meal. Or we thank whoever bought the meal. We th- you know, and that's good. You, sh- you should do that. You should be grateful. But what if you stopped and you remembered God and you said, God, this really came from you. Thank you for filling me up. Thank you for the abundant joy that you have given me. I'd like to challenge all of you as families this week to shift your prayer. If you pray before the meal, pray after the meal this week. Do it with your kids. Because what can often happen, if you're anything like me, is I get into like this rote tradition of things where I pray before the meal and then I don't think about God anymore. But at the end of my meal, if I remember God, guess what the last thing on my mind is? It's God. I'm remembering that all of this truly came from Him. And that's what they would do during this festival after every single meal. And friends, this whole idea of rejoicing and joy points us to the gospel. Center to the gospel is the fact that we are to rejoice and celebrate. There's a, a story that I'm sure you're all familiar with in uh, Luke 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. The son uh, takes his dad's inheritance and he runs out and he squanders it on life. He's uh, you know, buying all sorts of sinful things that you should not buy because he thinks that these are where the joy in life are. And after he's squandered everything and he's homeless and he's literally looking at the, you know, the things that the pigs eat. And he's thinking, man, I, should, I could eat what the pigs eat. 
And he realizes at this rock bottom moment that there's plenty of food back home at dad's. And dad probably won't accept me as a son, but maybe he'll let me be a servant. And I can, I can be a slave for my dad. And then I'd at least have food. And so he goes home and he's expecting his dad to, to hate him. He's expecting his dad to be mad at him. He's expecting his dad to discipline him. And yet what he finds is the exact opposite. As he sees his dad, his dad runs towards him and embraces him. And it's almost funny because he begins to spiel of, Dad, I'm so sorry, and here's why I'm sorry. And his dad cuts him off almost. He says, no, there's no time for that. We need to get the fattened calf. The ribeyes are coming out. We're throwing a party. To which we as religious people think, does he really need another party? I mean, this guy's got to be partied out. He needs like a Bible study or something. And not according to Jesus. Jesus says, no, what we need is a party to celebrate. Because this is a time of rejoicing. The older brother comes in and he's the religious type. Like, really? You think this guy needs a party? I need a party. I'm the one who's been doing the right things. I'm the one who's been worshiping God. He needs a, a belt to the back. He doesn't need a party. And what does is, what is the, the dad say at the end? He says, this son was lost and he has now come home. We had. We had to. We were obligated to. It was a moral issue that we celebrate his return. And it says that there was good food and there was dancing. And I, I'm a Baptist and there was dancing at this party. Just saying. We are supposed to be people of rejoicing. The last one is redemption. Doesn't this make you want to have a week like this? I mean, as I read this, I was like, we, we should do this as a church. We'll just cancel our services and take a week off of work. It reminded me of something we did. Actually, we went camping. Uh, I didn't camp. I don't sleep overnight in tents. Uh, I don't like to pretend I'm poor when I'm not. Uh, so I... I don't see the point. I know, God bless you. Everybody else loves camping. I just don't see the appeal. Uh, but I went out there while uh, the, the Rosses and the Goods and the Hayes were camping, and we had a meal together, and it, it was so cool. Just sitting around, hanging out with good friends. It did something for my soul. And then we cooked the steaks, uh, like on a fire pan, on a pan over the, the fire, like real men. I, mean, I felt like I was out in the Wild West, eating a steak with my bare hands off of this uh, pan. It was awesome. And I thought, man, we need more of this. That is just as spiritual, if maybe not more so, than me standing up here and preaching. What we often think of, of listening to a sermon as this kind of spiritual moment, and it is, we should listen to sermons. I'm glad you guys are here today. But living life together and rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing with God's people, that is so valuable. And you know what your kids are going to remember growing up? They're not going to remember my sermons. They'll probably remember some illustration that is a terrible illustration I didn't want them to remember anyways. They won't remember what I was illustrating. But what they will remember is the times you spent with them with God's people. The joy and the love and the peace that surrounded them as they were with God's people. That's why these are such powerful, powerful teaching moments. So th that's what we have. We have the theme of relaxation and we have the theme of rejoicing. And the last theme, uh, and then I'll close out, is the theme of redemption. Now this is the, the first theme that's kind of listed in the scriptures for this uh, for this festival. It's given to us in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. It says, You are to live in the shelters for seven days. All the native-born of Israel must live in shelters, so that the reason for this is that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this is so powerful, because what what would happen during this time is they were, as a family in this tent, is they would remind one another. The fathers would remind their sons, and, and uh, the, the, other, the men, the priests, everybody would remind each other of the time in which their ancestors were freed from Egyptian slavery. They'll say there was a time in which our ancestors lived in, in tents and shelters just like this. Not because they were celebrating a festival, but because God had released them from Egyptian slavery. And for 40 years they were in the wilderness. And the reason why we get to go home to our big house 
The reason why we get all these comforts, the reason why we get to live in this land flowing with milk and honey is because of what God did. And it was a, it was a great teaching moment as they remembered the redemption of God. And for us as Christians, if we were to celebrate this today, we would have even more reason to celebrate the redemption of God as we dwelled in tents. Now, I was kidding earlier about not liking camping. Actually, I wasn't kidding. I don't like camping. But I, I, was, I was making a joke. Uh, but, but there is really something true about camping that teaches you something, and that is, uh, it is, is, it is humbling. Because if you remember your comforts back home and you compare them to a tent, you, you'll notice a big difference. Uh, for me, the idea of roughing it is the Holiday Inn. And even when I'm in the Holiday Inn, I'm like, man, I miss my home. I miss my bed. I miss my things. And the problem with that is if we're not careful, we begin to think that we deserve them. They don't just become things we're grateful for. They become things that we need. You know, try to live without an air conditioner now, without a heater now, even though that's the way people live for you know, thousands of years. If we were to do it today, we would think this is not fair. This is not right. This is, a, this is something I need to live. And we can become spoiled. And we remember how spoiled we are when we go someplace where we do not have those comforts. It humbles us. And as Christians, what a great opportunity. Next time you go camping with your children, and in fact, this text made me even want to go camping with my children, which is amazing. You know God's at work. Because it is a great reminder of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. How Jesus Christ humbled himself. He took on one of these tents that are falling apart. He took on one of these tents that the Apostle Paul said he can't wait to get out of because he's groaning in it. And he walked amongst us. And he did not look like anything special. Why? Because he had this tent of flesh on him. And he did so so that he might live the life you and I could not live. So that he would die the death we deserve to die so that we might be declared righteous. Although it was nothing we deserved in ourselves. We get what he deserved. We get to live in houses, if you will. We get to live in a big mansion with God himself. Because Jesus stepped out of that mansion and dwelled in a tent. There are many ways I can point you to Jesus from this text. And if the band wants to come back up as I'm closing this sermon down. Uh, but the, the way that I really want to end this sermon is by pointing you to what John says in his gospel. With this, uh, this festival in his mind, John says this in John 1.14. says, The Word, that's Jesus Christ, became flesh and He dwelt. That word is literally tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much that You sent Your Son. God, I thank you that Jesus stepped out of heaven. He stepped out of the palace and he took on one of these tents that he might do what I could not do for myself so that I can relax in the gospel knowing that I am loved not because of what I do but because of what has been done. God, I thank you that Jesus took on a tent and he walked amongst us and he died so that I can rejoice. I have reason for celebration because of what you have done for me. God, I pray that as we leave here today, we would not think that it's all on our shoulders or on our back, but we would trust in our representative. We would trust that all things have been cleared for us in Jesus Christ. And our only response now, rightfully, is that we would relax and we would rejoice in what has been done for us.